Uh, we're looking at uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 1 to 3. You can follow in the bulletin in your Bible or on the screen uh, with us. Let me go ahead and read God's word for us. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and dive into God's word for us. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we ask that your word would now uh, penetrate our souls, our hearts, and speak to our very being, uh, so that we would hear beyond just with our physical ears, uh, but hear uh, from our souls, uh, the Creator, uh, the Savior, the Redeemer speaking to us. So give us ears to hear, Lord, and let it affect us, let it transform us and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've just launched into our uh, series in the book of Revelation, and we're going to go through it verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter. It's going to be an expositional uh, series. Um, and verses 1 to 3 is a, it's what's called a prologue. It's, um, it's an introduction to the book. And there's some really important things here that the Apostle John uh, includes for us in the prologue. And it's so important that you can really make the case that this is not just the prologue for this book, but it's really a prologue for life. It's a really an important prologue to keep always keep in mind. Uh, so I just want to highlight three things about this prologue that's important, important to keep in mind. Three things in this prologue. Uh, there's an important illusion in this prologue. Okay? Not illusion, but illusion. And then there's an important application in this prologue. And lastly, an important invitation. Okay? So point number one, an important illusion. Point number two, an important application. Point number three, an important invitation. All right? So uh, point number one, an illusion. Okay? An important illusion in this prologue. What's an illusion? Okay? This takes us back to um, high school English, right? Um, an illusion is not an illusion. It's a literary term for referring back to something either directly or, or in passing reference. Right? So if I were to say to my wife, uh, shall I compare thee to an Atlanta's hot Atlanta summer's day, which she will not find romantic at all, she will at least be able to tell that's an allusion to Shakespeare's sonnet 18. All right, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? All right, thou art more lovely and more tempered. When the first century Jewish Christians read the prologue here, and the very first verse, they would have seen a very clear allusion to something in the Old Testament. Uh, and that's easy to find uh, when you look at especially the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint, because then the New Testament is written in the Greek, and the Old Testament in the Greek form are that much more comparable, and the, the alignments are more clear, and that's what we find. 
the, the very first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, uh, is a clear allusion, and, and most commentaries and theologians consider it explicit allusion, to the Old Testament prophet Daniel. When he interprets, right, very famously, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he says, uh, he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. Okay, um, and, and that repeats itself. This mystery has been revealed to me. Okay. Make known to your servant. Okay. John is, from the very beginning of this book, throwing back to Daniel, the Old Testament prophet, okay. alluding back to him with one difference. In, in Daniel, when he spoke of this coming kingdom, he spoke of it in terms of something that will come to pass in the latter days, days that are far removed from Daniel's time. But when John alludes to Daniel, he, he rewords one part of the phrase. He says, what must soon take place. Okay. Uh, meaning from where John is standing, the coming of the kingdom and the ancient of days, along with the final defeat of evil and the, and the fullness of God's shalom and, and his kingdom, these things are now much closer to him, John, the Apostle John. It's either here or it's mostly here. Okay. John is saying that his time, in other words, is the latter days. His time is the last days. Now, here's why that's important. Uh, the, the key to understanding Scripture, once again, uh, as we talked about last week, has to be through Scripture. Uh, remember the puzzle analogy, right? So the boundaries and the edges and the picture on the front of the box itself give you the guideline as to where the pieces ought to go and where they ought not to go, right? It gives you the, the proper framework for where the puzzle pieces should go. When you look at scripture, when any book of the Bible, and try to piece things together, especially the more mysterious and symbolic things, you have to keep it within the frame of the scriptures themselves. Okay, not going beyond that. And that's what John is doing. He's alluding back to Scripture as a way of understanding what he's about to write in Scripture. Okay. But if we were to go beyond the boundaries of Scripture and we begin to interpret Scripture not according to Scripture, not according to Scripture's allusion to Scripture, we're bound to allude to things outside of Scripture as a way of trying to make sense of what Scripture is saying. Does that make sense? we can very easily turn revelation, the unveiling of something, to, to turn that into something more confusing. Revelation becomes confusion if we don't within this prop, stay within these proper boundaries of Scripture and instead interpret Scripture according to our modern-day allusions to modern-day events, uh, modern-day politics, modern-day e eco economics, without understanding Scripture on its own terms. Here's another application of this principle. Whenever the Bible uses the term last days or eschatos, it is not using it the way we modern people tend to use the phrase last days. We, we, when we talk about last days, we tend to think of it in terms of quantity, um, certain number of years remaining in this, in this time period until, until Jesus returns. Right? We think in terms of Quantity, but when the Bible uses a term, especially in the book of Revelation, it's used more in terms of quality. It's not how long a time period is, but what kind of a time period we're in. Uh, we do this in English too. 
there's two ways we use the word time in the English language. Uh, I, right, this morning it took us a long time to get our children in the car. Right? True story. <laughs> uh, it took us a long time to get them in the car. That's quantity. But it's different, right, when I say the times are tough. Right? These are desperate times. That's talking about the quality of time and not the quantity of time, right? When, when the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, talks about time, it's talking more about the quality, what kind of time it is, and not so much how, how long or what, what length of a period of time it is. This happens, you see this again in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Okay? Um, how does he start off the letter uh, to the Hebrews? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet, prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. The book of Hebrews was most likely written somewhere between 50, 60 AD before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And he says, referring to his day, these last days. Referring to his time as the end times. Again, we think quantity. They think quality. Okay. We think so many years left until Jesus returns. They think this is the kind of time. The end time is really a kind of time that we're living in. Second Peter 3.8 says, With God, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. How do you quantify that? How do you, how do you quantify that and apply that to the last days? The point is, if we don't interpret Scripture on scripture's terms and and use scriptural terms to interpret scripture we're bound we're bound to exceed beyond what scripture is trying to tell us and distort its intended message the number one reason why there's so much confusion as to what the book of revelation is saying today is because there is a lot of temptation to interpret scripture not according to scripture but according to cable news okay according to breaking news that's not being a careful exegete of Scripture and staying within the boundaries of Scripture. That's being a, for lack of a better word, a self-centered exegete that interprets Scripture according to what's happening around me. The truth of God's revelation must be based upon what I'm experiencing in, in the here and now. That's not faithfully exegeting Scripture. That's, that's going about Scripture in a very self-centered way. And if we... On top of that, if we say that the end time is here because of what is happening within my lifetime and in my context and what I'm able to perceive, whether it's war, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's a natural disaster, we, we do a great disservice to the saints who've been suffering things much worse and for much longer than we ever came along. To say, for example, that the book of Revelation is applicable and is directly speaking to what we're seeing in Afghanistan right now or the earthquake in Haiti and things like that is doing a great disservice to the Christians who've been imprisoned in North Korea for decades who've been living in the last days long before we watched that stuff on the news. And to limit, limit our understanding of what's going on in Revelation to our experience is not only an inaccurate interpretation of Scripture, it's a disservice to all the other saints who, are, who must find, who should find Scripture just as relevant to them as it is to us. 
We need to flip the model around. Okay. How about we make scripture the lens through which we read the world and not make our world the lens through which we read scripture? How about we begin to interpret our experience based on scripture and not interpret scripture based on what's happening in our experience? And the Apostle John is, I think, fully aware of that danger and therefore starting the letter off with an allusion back to the prophet Daniel to keep us on the right track. He's saying, let scripture tell you what scripture is about to tell you. Let scripture tell you what scripture means by the last days. Not, not culture. Not the media. Not breaking news. So John begins by alluding not to what's happening in what's the latest news in Roman Empire, which would be their context. He begins with Daniel. He begins with the Old Testament prophet Daniel and begins to talk about what kind of time they're living in now and we're living in now. It's a time of the final revelation of Jesus Christ. The king has come. And he's, he's brought his kingdom down to, he's inaugurated his kingdom, but it's not yet fully here. He's, he's inaugurated it, he's initiated it, he's accomplished it, but it's not yet fully here. It's like the allies landing on Normandy and secured their victory, right? Victory is imminent. It's pretty much, the war is pretty much over, right? You can, you can smell it in the air. But at the same time, right, like the, like, for example, after the first half hour of Saving Private Ryan, the rest of the movie, it's not like sunshine and rainbows, right? There's still gory images of battles, right? Nevertheless, victory has been secured. That's us right now. That's our time right now. Uh, the time of things soon to come. The time of time in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. The time of his kingdom already here, but not yet fully here. But because Christ has come, there's nothing more for heaven to now reveal to us. Other than that, he is the full and final and complete revelation of God. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. That's it. There'll be no new appearances of Jesus on the earth, uh, no new uh, books added to the Bible. In fact, Revelation 22 says, if anyone adds to this book, adds to what God has finally revealed, God will add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. There'll be no new apostles, therefore, appointed by Jesus to add new revelation to God's already existing revelation. We're living in the last days because we have received the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. We're in the already not yet phase, the last phase of the kingdom of God. That much is clear from the scriptures and from revelation. And for now, here's the point. Here's the, here's the point to the first point. We have to be content with that. As, as the Apostle John alludes back to the Old Testament and shows us this is the kind of time you're living in and not be so dissatisfied as to go out and make additional allusions about the future based on our current political socioeconomic environment. The, the point is to hang on to the allusions that Scripture makes about Scripture and not go beyond that and make strange and extra illusions based on our experience. This is given to us not to fall into illusions about the future, but to make proper illusions about Scripture. Okay. Here's the second point. 
there's an important application here for us as well, going beyond that. Um, in verse 1, uh, we see, actually see something we don't typically see. Um, actually, the entire passage today, verses 1 to 3, what we typically see in the beginning of a letter written to the church is really a word of personal greeting. And that was a way of the, the apostles kind of reassuring them, you know, this is coming from me directly. And in a way, it's kind of like they're, it's kind of like, like how an athlete could autograph, right, a, a basketball card and, and that goes up in value because it's proven to be authentic. This is, that was kind of the typical way the apostles would address the church by, by kind of certifying it as this is an apostolic letter. And we have that in Revelation. John does identify himself as the author. But there is a whole prologue that comes before that. As if John is saying, this is actually more important than you knowing this is coming from me. He, he talks about this, there's a sequence of transmission, right? Uh, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, and he made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, right? So there's kind of this top-down structure. God, angels, servant John, and then to the church, right? And why would John be emphasizing this as like the main thing, the starting point, even before his personal uh, greeting? What is the big deal about this? We have to consider the audience that's first receiving this letter uh, for a moment. The audience that's first receiving this letter. Um, if we want to properly apply this to ourselves, we have to understand how this first applied to the first audience, the original audience this was written to. Without understanding how this applies to them, we won't really understand how this applies to us. Who were the original audience? They were first century Jewish Christians living under severe persecution under the Roman Empire. Um, and also from their fellow Jews. Uh, they're suffering political persecution, economic persecution, right, religious persecution, cultural persecution, right, being rejected, ridiculed, outcasted, canceled left and right. All because, right, uh, from the top, the emperor, from Caesar, there was this order coming down, sent down to the governing bodies, to the Senate, then down to the local governors, then down to the centurions, then down to the soldiers, and then to the masses. Christians are not welcome here. And, and this is how their world functions. Whatever comes down from the top and, and, and whatever order is transmitted from the top, that, that is the law of the land. And it affects every man, woman, boy, and girl. That's their context. Christians living under severe persecution under the Roman Empire. Despite this cultural context, right, John says to the church, listen to the revelation of Jesus Christ transmitted from God to the angels, to the apostles, then to the church. Tune into a different transmission. That's what he's saying. This is what you, the church, are to recognize as the ultimate authority in your life, even above Rome. The authority of Christ. The authority of Christ supersedes, exceeds, and rules over the authority of Caesar. The application here is to therefore make Jesus your King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
and make that your fight. The, the, nobody receiving this letter in the first century context in the early church took this letter and, and translated to mean, now we must go and rebel against Rome. Nobody took it that way. Nobody took this and, 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 and received it to mean, now we have to form a militia and start, start fighting for our independence as if that was the way to secure Jesus' kingdom. And as if Jesus' kingdom is threatened by Caesar. What is Rome today? In ruins. In museums. To say, to say that Jesus is concerned about how the authority of Caesar is compromising his authority is to belittle Jesus. The truer and better application of this is look to Jesus who has from everlasting to everlasting been sitting on the throne as king of kings and lord of lords above the centurions, governors, senates, and emperors and recognize him for who he is. One little word from him will make empires fall. Put your hope in him, even in the midst of great persecution. Because he has overcome and he will overcome all. That's, that's an application here in the prologue that we have to hold on to actually throughout the entire book and for life. By seeing more of Jesus, you find in him all that you need as you live in this mix, weird mix of the already and the not yet. The taste of victory and then also, also hints of defeat. The smell of victory in the air, but also the smell of loss. And as we hold on to his name, who Jesus is, we can defy spiritually, not physically, not militaristically, spiritually, all other authority structures that tend to define who we are. And that authority structure for you could be an academic authority structure, right? Defining who you are based on, based on your academic performance. For some of you, it could be financial or vocational, what you secure for yourself materially. For some of you, what weighs on you most is what's happening politically around the world. For some of you, it could be relational, just what people think of you, how well you're doing in, in your social relationships. Or if you're like me, it's really a mixture of all of these things. The application here is, it's enough for us to know that even as you feel like the world is falling apart, and whether that world, again, is academic, vocational, financial, political, socioeconomical, Jesus is still the King of kings and Lord of lords. The application here is to look to him so intently that the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I think one of the most underrated Disney songs of all time, this is just me being a father of two daughters, is I See the Light from the movie Tangled, which is a very underrated movie as well in and of itself. Um, the chorus in that song, I See the Light, captures this application really well. So I'm going to read this for you. It goes like this. And at last I see the light, and it's like the fog has lifted. And at last I see the light, 
and it's like the sky is new. And it's warm and real and bright, and the world has somehow shifted. All at once, everything is different now that I see you. All at once, everything is different now that I see you. Did their circumstances change? Uh, Rapunzel and Flynn? No. But still, she's able to say, and they're able to say, the sky is new and the world has shifted. A new heaven and a new earth. How? Why? Now that I see you. That's the application of Revelation. As you live in the, the weird mix of already and not yet, as you see Jesus and put all of your hope in him, you have everything that you'll ever need. You'll find that the, the thought of seeing him face to face is the ultimate comfort that you need. The thought of him making all things new, making all things right, everything crooked, straight, is the, is the hope that you really needed. Nothing else will be nearly as good as that. That's the application of this prologue and the entire book of Revelation. Everything becomes different when you see Jesus for who he is. And that leads to our third point, and that is an invitation, a very important invitation that we have to heed and respond to, given that this is true. Uh, Notice what it says in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now, by the way, again, another common misunderstanding people have about the word prophecy is modern-day terms, prophecy means some prediction about the future. When the literal word for prophecy means God's word. And a prophet is someone who therefore conveys God's word to God's people. Does prophecy sometimes contain things about the future? Yes. Is that all there is to prophecy? No. All right. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Okay. There's an invitation to be blessed here, isn't there? Blessed is the one who reads the word of this prophecy, and that's essentially to preach on it right, in this corporate setting. And blessed are those who hear it. That's you, the congregation, who are giving your attentive listening to the the prophecy of God expounded and explained and preached. But there's a third thing, isn't there? And who keep, keep what is written in it. And that means to respond to it actively, to decide upon it, to be proactive with it. It's not to stare at it, think about it, and contemplate it, it's to come to a decision point and act upon it. That's what caused us to be, that's, that is what Revelation is calling us to do, to decide. It's, it's like what the uh, old English writer G.K. Chesterton said, Chesterton said about uh, having an open mind. He said, an open mind is as good as an open mouth. At some point, it's got to close on something, or else you won't ingest and digest anything. Likewise, a mind that is constantly open, never closing, will not move forward in life. It's like keeping an open mind about marrying someone. I'm just keeping an open mind about so-and-so. Well, 
as long as you do that, you'll never marry them. Right? It's got to close on something. God's revelation is given to us not merely for us to read it and hear it and keep an open mind about it, but to act upon it. That's the invitation. More specifically, here's the call that, that we're invited to respond to. The call here to recognize that Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, is truly your king now. Live and submit to this king with everything that you are now. That's the invitation. And now as in now. While there's still time. Think about what a gift time is. Because if, if the first time God came to us with the gospel was also the last time he came to us with the gospel, none of us here would be saved, right? But God, by his grace, brought his gospel the first time and gave us time so we would respond to it, so we would choose it and side with the King of kings and Lord of lords and enter into his kingdom. It means there's time for us to choose him, and the time is now. To not choose is to choose. To not choose him as your king is to choose yourself as king and saying, I'm, I'm fine with me going about building my little kingdom here on earth made of my grades, my possessions, my physical appearance, my temporary pleasures, my money, my house, my car, my marriage, my children. I'm good with my little kingdom, with me sitting on the throne. To not choose him as king is to choose against him and to choose to enthrone yourself as king. The invitation is to see this light. The invitation is to submit to Christ as your King of kings and Lord of lords and to, to confess you were blind, but now you see. You were made a wretch by your idols and the sins that come from your idols, but you've been found by grace and changed. And now you want nothing more than you want him. That's the choice to make now. Because now won't always be here. I've heard my professor in seminary teaching on this, and he read us a, a quote, an excerpt from C.S. Lewis, and I thought that was so fitting, and uh, I don't think I can do anything to improve on that, so I'm just going to share that excerpt with you. An incredible excerpt from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and it goes like this. Why is God landing in this enemy-occupied world in disguise and starting a sort of secret society to undermine the devil? Why is he not landing in force, invading it? Is it that he is not strong enough? While Christians think he is going to land in force, we do not know when, but we can guess why he is delaying. He wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. I do not suppose... You and I would have thought much of a Frenchman who waited till the Allies were marching into Germany and then announced he was on our side. God will invade. 
But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of our world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right, but what is the good of saying you are on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment, is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. Why is God taking his time? Because he's giving you and me, our family, our friends, our neighbors, time to choose. And he's also giving us time to go to them, invite them to choose. Because when God returns, when it's impossible to choose otherwise, our choice will be made evident. It will be made evident. Either we meet Jesus with irresistible love that we have had in the here and now, or we, we meet him with irresistible horror for what we didn't have for him in our hearts. Now is the time to heed the invitation to seek the Lord while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near. Because to not choose is to choose. It's choosing to reject this invitation. As long as we have now, the call is for you to choose now. Turn away from your idols. Repent of your sins. Rejoice in God's mercy and grace. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved, you and your household. And now begin to serve your tiny little speck of life in the here and now. Live that by serving Christ as your king, your king of kings and lord of lords, because his kingdom is coming soon. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift of not only your son and his gospel, but also your gift of time, your gift of life, so that we may choose him. God, I pray that we would close on him, not remain open, not just contemplative, not just meditative, not just reflective, not just investigative, but Lord, may we embrace him Worship him and submit to him as our King of kings and Lord of lords. And now, may we, even now, enter into his kingdom by faith, trusting in his, his mercy and his grace. Give, grant us this faith, God, and 
and go beyond that to empower us to share this invitation to those around us who still have time. Give us your, your heart for them. Give us your sense of urgency. Give us, give us a sense that these things will soon take place. So send us, Lord, and help us to make the best of every minute that you grant us and serve you as our King and go on your mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.